Tonight we get to turn our attention to Philemon and uh, close out our study tonight. I'm anticipating our next study in the book of Daniel, uh, which we have to put off for a couple weeks because of baptism, but that means I'll just have all the more to share with you when we finally come together. We're in Philemon tonight in verses 15 through 25 and come to this final look at this marvelous little book describing God's love in the context of interpersonal relationships. We've seen the people in verses 1 and 2. We've seen the problem, a runaway slave, Onesimus, who is now a believer, having been sent back to Philemon, and Paul in, uh, requesting for Philemon to receive Onesimus. And now we come to the proposal which we have been looking at, which is ultimately for Philemon to release Onesimus. And last time we came together, we looked at the first five principles of love played out, and tonight we'll look at the final four principles demonstrated in this text. What we've seen thus far is in verse 8 that the, uh, the first principle we saw is that we are to free people up to love. We are to operate in such a way that we enable people to demonstrate love to one another, to get out of the way. That's what Paul does in verse 8. He says, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, I, I can compel you, I can request of you, I could exercise, he's saying, his right as an apostle of the church to demand Philemon to act in a particular way, instead he steps back and appeals to him. He gets out of the way. And oftentimes in our circumstances and situations as we are ministering to one another, we were wanting to come along and encourage one another to walk in love, to demonstrate the love of God, because when they operate in love, they'll go far beyond anything that we could establish. If they indeed are reflecting the very love of God, which has been lavished upon them graciously, willingly, richly, they in turn are going to respond with that kind of love towards others. And so our first principle when operating by love is we want to free others up to demonstrate love. The second principle we saw came in verse 9, and it is that love encourages other believers to walk in love. We not only walk and love ourselves, but we exhort and encourage others to do the same. That's what Paul says there in verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Paul himself, driven by love, the principle of love, wanting to stimulate and cultivate love in Philemon, asks and appeals to Philemon to do the same. He is calling him to follow his example. And the word uh, appeal to them is the word parakaleo. He says, come alongside of me. I exhort you. I urge you. I appeal to you. All that is um, translated there. The idea is, come alongside of me, Philemon, and walk in the same footsteps as I am walking in. He is encouraging this, this uh, walk of love. So that this is what our goal is in the midst of any circumstance, any difficulty, any situation, conflict between a husband and a wife, conflict within the church, conflict amongst God's people, we're striving to put love on display. 
We're striving to identify when it's not being manifested. We are calling one another to walk in a, a principled love, to demonstrate it. That led us to the third characteristic, which is that love operates for the benefit of others. It's not consumed with itself. It is operating for others' benefits. That's what Paul appeals to the end, second half of verse 9. Since I am a person of, as of Paul, the age, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, uh, he's saying ultimately, Philemon, walk in love for my personal benefit so that I may receive from you the grace of God in your righteous response so I may be benefited from it. Of course, he had to rattle his chains here, reminding uh, Philemon not only was he imprisoned, but of his old age as well, recognizing his limitations and weaknesses, saying, basically, Philemon, minister to me as you do the right thing. So this principle of love is that we are encouraging others to operate for the benefit of others, not just for themselves. Not just looking out for their own personal interests, but looking out for the interests of others and to bring a blessing to others. Philemon had this opportunity to bless Paul by his response. I think oftentimes we fail to love because we aren't ready to lose something. We're more concerned about our own personal interests. We're not concerned about what blessing would be upon others. We're holding on to something for our own interests. And the principle of love operates considering others. It cares for others richly. Seeks to richly bless and build up. It's led us to the fourth principle. Love is motivated by a higher purpose. Love is... uh, This is in a negative sense. It does not want to get in the way of what God is doing. Love is considering what God is accomplishing. That's what he says there in verse 10 when he says, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Basically, Paul is saying to Philemon, do you recognize the divine work that God is doing in Onesimus who is now a believer in Christ. This runaway slave is now a believer. He is the one I'm appealing to you. So for the negative aspect, don't get in the way of God's work. Look what God is accomplishing through this child, through Onesimus, a runaway slave who is now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now, because of God's good favor, has been brought near. Think about, Philemon, your testimony. If you were to go out and withhold grace and withhold favor to Onesimus, think about your testimony, how it would be hurt, and the testimony of the gospel would be hurt by your lack of demonstrating love. And then the final principle we saw last time was that love is the channel through which God pours out his favor. We saw that in verses 11 through 14, this Onesimus, who used to be useless to you, is now both useful to you and to me, Paul says. This runaway slave who was useless is now useful, and through this, God is pouring out his favor. 
As you demonstrate love, Philemon, to Onesimus, and you receive Onesimus back, this useless slave is now useful. He's going to be of a benefit. You're going to be rewarded in fellowship and restoration. You're going to be rewarded by his service to you and to me, Paul says. In fact, ultimately what is anticipated is that Philemon would respond with receiving Onesimus equipping Onesimus, sending Onesimus back to Paul to minister to Paul so that ultimately Paul would receive the benefit of Onesimus' service and Paul can say to Philemon, you gave this to me. You ministered to me in this way, having both encouraged Paul's heart and Philemon's heart as well. Now that all sets up the final four points that Paul brings out here to close out this book for us. The sixth principle is this. Love operates in response to God's great work. Love operates in response to God's great work. We see that in verses 15 and 16. It says, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? This principle here is building off of our fourth principle. You know, love is motivated by a higher purpose. And in that, again, we're reminded that we are not to work against what God is doing, Here, I want to see a different aspect. We are to be uh, concerned about or working in light of what God is doing. We should be observing our circumstances and situations in light of what God is accomplishing. Paul here begins to shed some spiritual light on the situation. I mean, if if you're Philemon, here's your circumstance. One day, you acquired Onesimus to help you labor. As we said, he likely was a business owner, so he acquired Onesimus to come alongside of him and help him do his work. Along that, he helped organize his household. And amidst in organizing his household, the church would come in and interact with Onesimus. And then one day, Onesimus disappeared. And Philemon is now left with a runaway slave. He's lost something financially. And on top of that, the church is aware of Onesimus' departure, probably casting a shadow on the very character of Philemon. Now, out of the blue, Tychicus returns with the letter from Paul, from Rome. He comes with the book of Colossians, and on top of that, a personal letter that is to be read to Philemon in front of the whole church. And Philemon would be standing there wondering, how in the world did I get into this situation? What is going on that would uh, take all of these random events and bring them all together, how am I to see them? And Paul takes a moment in verse 15 and 16 and says, let me give you a little spiritual perspective to rise out of the earthly circumstances of what you're seeing and to see this from a grander vantage point. 
And what is that grander vantage point he starts? For perhaps. Let me suggest to you from the providence of God a greater reason for which all, all of this is taking place. Perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. Perhaps God let him run away so that he would save him. Perhaps you had to suffer a little while at loss so that God would capture his heart, the heart of Onesimus, and turn the heart of Onesimus to God so that now Onesimus would no longer be just a brother in the flesh, he would be a brother in the Lord. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 16. It's much more to you, both a brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord, a beloved brother. See, oftentimes when we're in the middle of circumstances and difficulties, it's so easy to see the earthly details that we need to work hard to step up and see the bigger heavenly work, the spiritual purposes. I mean, I think of this as a parent, watching my children make decisions in life, recognizing as they make decisions they're going to come with certain spiritual consequences and to figure out how tightly I want to hold on to the steering wheel there, how tightly I want to control their choices, how tightly I want to work through the situation because of the different fears and uncertainties that come. And most certainly when difficulties come and I'm tempted to see all of the earthly consequences, it's in those moments I need to recognize that the Lord allows certain difficulties oftentimes to do a greater work. I think I was talking to a group of pastors at the Shepherds Conference uh, last week. And um, in talking to them, we were talking about the salvation of young people. You know, the teens as they are thinking about where they are in the Lord and their confession and baptism and repentance. And an observation that was made is that most times uh, a young person comes to some kind of crisis moment that in that crisis moment their heart is revealed. Choice of friends, a circumstantial event, a difficulty presses them and squeezes them that in the midst of it, Great pressure is laid on their heart, and their heart is exposed. Sometimes it's a severe accident. Sometimes it's a life-altering decision that is made that is with them for the rest of their life. They've never drank, and they choose to drink. They get into an accident, and now they can no longer walk the same, or they're in a wheelchair or some other significant events, and we see the earthly details, the earthly situation, we're consumed by it, but it is oftentimes the need for this very principle right here to see what is God doing there. We want to see love looks to operate in light of God's working, his bigger working of what he's accomplishing. And we ought to be concerned about not only understanding, yes, the earthly details and the situation that's going on, but we also, as God's people, work to train our hearts to look at heavenly things. That's what Paul says to the Colossians. You remember in Colossians 3, 
1 through 4. He says, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 2, he says, Set your mind on these things, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is a reminder, even as he says to the Colossians, we are preparing our hearts to think about the things above. Paul says a similar thing to the Philippians. Is it a wonder, isn't it a surprise to you that in the prison epistles, Philippians, Colossians, also here in Philemon, all letters written by Paul while he was in an imprisoned state, he is saying to his audience, dwell on heavenly things, not earthly things. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says this, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, notice, let your mind dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We learn to look at our circumstances and situations in light of what God is accomplishing. Gaining the kind of spiritual altitude to see his good work in the midst of it. Because when we get too earthly, we get distracted We get fearful. Idols start to spring up in our hearts. We start to grow weak in faith and mistrust. But when gaining the kind of spiritual altitude, we can see, all right, God is accomplishing a greater purpose and we're part of something as as a bigger picture. Paul brings this out here again. No longer a slave. Onesimus ran away a slave and he came back a beloved brother in Christ. He ran away useless, he came back useful. And so we need that kind of higher altitude in the midst of our difficulties so that we can see from God's vantage point and can control our emotions and desires in the difficulty. Because it's easy to see our losses. It's easy to see the consequences and, the emo- and it's easy to feel the emotional experience of loss. It's easy to recognize what someone has done to hurt us. It's hard to see God's good work in the midst of it. It's easy for us to, again, value emotional comfort. Hard for us to value that God might take us through a difficulty to demonstrate long-suffering within us, to grow our faith, to test us in such a way that we would have an enduring and growing faith that is maturing season after season. That isn't exactly uh, signed up for by us. But that's exactly what Paul seeks to demonstrate here. Love operates according to the working of God. It is seeking to respond in light of God's activity. And is seeking to, to rejoice in what God is doing, even if it is at personal cost to us at a time. So yes, as a parent, there may be a time your child, as they get older, they come to that crisis moment, and they sin against you. 
They go against one of your commands, one of your exhortations. They hang out with a friend they ought not to hang out with, though you've warned them that that friend is going to mislead them. You've warned them of the principles of 1 Corinthians that reminds them that bad company corrupts good morals. You've reminded them that if they are to engage in the pursuit, that they are likely going to be led into a transgression. And then you find out they did. The immediate temptation of the heart is to think, here you go again. You've violated my commands. You have gone off. You have disobeyed. Indeed, while all of that is there, we're also taking a step back saying, Lord, what are you going to do in this situation to draw this child to you that they would be a child of God, that they would be faithful, that they would be more than simply our child, they would be your child, one of faith, one who grows and demonstrates a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we navigate through the situations and circumstances. We work in such a way as to direct people so that they would see the grander working of God in the circumstance. This is how love operates. In fact, I I understand that this becomes difficult for people to begin to see their circumstances through God's lens. I remember events up in Osprey when we were ministering up there. And I remember a particular Sunday, uh, a random visitor had come to the church and needed to talk to me uh, immediately. So we went out into the foyer to talk outside. And and the guy was saying, "I, I need to leave my wife. I need to marry this new gal I'm with. And I told him, I don't understand what you're asking me. Well, well, you don't understand. This gal I'm married to, she's evil. She's, she's uh, you know, difficult to live with. And this new person, this is clearly God's will for me to marry this other person. He desperately wanted my approval to say to him that you could have this new relationship and to abandon his previous commitment. Obviously, our exchange didn't last long because I asked them again, how is it that we could, that God would honor that when he has said that you were to be married to one woman for one lifetime? That he does not look favorably upon divorce. He pleaded with me, and I, again, had to exhort him to the scriptures. And it's in that moment, it is this very thing that he was wrestling with, bringing his will under the design of God. I asked him at that moment, what if God wanted to show the love of God through you by you patiently enduring a difficult relationship? He didn't want to hear that question. What if God wanted to show you your wife a a enduring, faithful love, even in the midst of difficulty. See, often, again, we are tempted to look at the situations and say, what is the best for us? Love doesn't operate that way. Love operates saying, why do we operate according to God's design? 
How do we operate according to God's purposes? That's how we are to operate. Not letting these emotions and passions and desires rule us, but allowing, the, again, the purposes of God to rule. Because God might indeed take that impossible situation, that difficult situation, and accomplish marvelous things out of it. And we wouldn't know unless we are patiently enduring through long-suffering through difficulties, in love, waiting for God to accomplish His good purposes. That's the sixth principle of love. The seventh is that love lavishly demonstrates forgiveness. We see that in verse 17. Love lavishly demonstrates forgiveness. Paul then asks, here's the, here's the question directly. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. This is the request. The, the request that all of this has been le- leading up to, the whole letter here, the whole grand request for forgiveness. And yet, what's really funny about it, he never asked them to forgive. He never says to him, Afie me him. Or charizomai, or any other word for forgiveness. It's simply receive him. Accept Onesimus to yourself, Philemon. And if, and it's even more than that, Paul compels Philemon to treat Onesimus with love and forgiveness, to have a lavish embrace. I mean, the only way that you're going to have verse 17 where you accept him as you would me, the only way that this is going to happen is if Philemon has released his right to collect the debt. And Paul says, ultimately, Philemon, if you recognize me as a ministry partner, if we are together in the Lord, operating together for the same purposes, accept Onesimus. Accept him and, and receive him in such a way that he would benefit you and me. But it's this little phrase at the end that's striking to me. Love him, accept him as you would me. Treat him in the exact same way that you would treat me. That's the measure of love here that he is asking for. It is a lavish demonstration of forgiveness, a lavish demonstration of love. It's interesting, just think about this. There's no formal process here described. There is no, um, well, when Onesimus asks you, when Onesimus recognizes what he's done wrong, accept him. Those who take the conditional view of forgiveness and say you cannot forgive until they're asked, just assume that that's just added there. But it's not stated. In fact, what is stated, though, and is obvious, Onesimus is repenting. He's there in Philemon's presence. He came back with the letter. He is there already demonstrating that he is going to respond in a righteous way. And he demonstrates this 
Again, return of repentance to respond to Philemon. And Paul asks Philemon, show him love, a lavish love, by accepting him, by receiving him to yourself. This is where, again, love is demonstrated. It does not hold on to debts. It does not let a debt get in the way of a relationship. This is why I think that at the root of all forgiveness, the root of all forgiveness is love. Forgiveness is simply the fruit of love. It is the expression of love that comes out of the heart. Forgiveness is the response of love. I mean, this is what happens when God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us, that he, the son took upon himself all of our debts, and all of that debt has, we have been released from, so that we ought to respond in such a way to release others of their debts. Love lavishly releases debts. It doesn't hold on to it. That's what Paul appeals to Philemon for. Let's move on to this next one because it adds to this idea. Love also is modeled and emulated. Love is modeled and emulated. That's what Paul says in 18 through 20. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe me, owe to me, even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, Paul asking for forgiveness here. He is both modeling the expression of love and calling Philemon to emulate it follow my example. He is modeling it here. And that in this sense, Paul is saying to Philemon, if there's any cost, if there's any debt that Onesimus owes you, put that to my account. Now listen, I don't think Paul is manipulating here. I think Paul is realizing I have personally benefited from Onesimus. He has served me in my imprisonment. He has cared for my needs. And that's a cost to that. There's a price to that labor. And that price I am willing to pay for. So Philemon, if you've been mistreated, you've been mistreated for my benefit. The Lord allowed all that to operate. I will repay you. He's demonstrating love there. He could have taken advantage of Onesimus and could have decided that, oh, here, Onesimus is now serving me. This is a free gift to me. I'll take advantage of Onesimus' labor and love. He doesn't. He's even willing to pay. So in this sense, he is demonstrating a love towards Onesimus and Philemon. But then he turns the table on Philemon there at the end of, in the middle of verse 19, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. I have no idea whether that meant there was some kind of physical labor and difficulty and Paul rescued him or whether that meant that Paul ministered the gospel to him or whether that meant that uh, 
Uh, Philemon personally benefited from the relationship, but in some way, Philemon understood exactly what this meant, that his life was personally enriched because of his time with the Apostle Paul. So the Paul is saying to Philemon, Philemon, here is my love. Follow my love. Follow my example. Do unto Onesimus exactly the kind of thing that I am willing to do to show an expressible love, a lavish love and support. Yes, you were wronged, but demonstrate love. Remember the kind of love that God showed you. You were forgiven an impossible debt, so you also ought to forgive this debt. Just as you owe me an impossible amount, or you owe me an amount, your own life as well. So show that same love over to Onesimus. See, oftentimes I think here's where the principle of love breaks down in the pursuit of forgiveness. We tend to we tend to measure our forgiveness. Um, not against love, but against something else. We, we ought to measure our forgiveness against love. In this sense, it's what I'm pointing at. When we forgive, we should be asking this, can I show the same love to that person as I would show a dear friend? Here's the measure of love. When Paul was saying in verse 17, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. This is the test of our forgiveness. Can I love that person in such a way that it is the same way I would treat a dear friend? That's how you know you have fully forgiven. When you can treat that person who has sinned against you in a lavish way. Paul says, emulate my love. And he'd modeled love. One more principle to draw out is just in the concluding works, verses 21 through 25. The last principle is love is hopeful. We see that in verse 21. And it's, again, this um, principle that is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 13, but it's demonstrated here, here as well. Paul says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Love is operating in this hope. He knows that Philemon is going to do the right thing and even more than that is going to go beyond. And I love this. When we just ask people to operate in love, it goes well beyond I mean, look, I can command you, let Onesimus go. But I expect that you're going to operate in love and you're going to do more than that. You're going to receive him. You're going to feed him. You may even clothe him. You may house him for a while and you may send him back to me refreshed. Oh, that is much more love. Paul has this hope, I I hope, I I have this confidence in your obedience. It's almost like I don't even have to write this. I know what you're going to do, but I'm going to write it anyways and have this confidence that you're going to do even more than what I say. Love is driven by this hopeful expectation. 
Friends, I think we have that kind of hope in love when we are dwelling on the riches of God's love himself. When we know what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and we walk in that same kind of love towards other, others, that same kind of growing hope is found in us towards others. Because we know the bigger love of God that is poured out. He is going to do, Philemon is going to do more than even what Paul had asked. I guess this should be the lesson for us. When we're tempted to get in the way and let our worries and rule our hearts and, and overrule our tongues, when we are tempted to uh, think we have to control the situation, it's in those moments that we recognize love hopes the best and believes the best about God's work in his people. Love encourages others to do what's right. It expects great things in them because God is at work doing those things. And I think about, again, the principle and practice of love, what is accomplished. It is because of God's love that he's reconciled enemies to himself. It is because of his love that he's restored relationships. It's because of his love that he strengthens bonds He enriches the impoverished. So we ought to be expecting great things from God's love displayed among his people and even hoping for it. It's part of the difficulty. I mean, frankly, when someone would say, you know, uh, the pursuit of legalistic works versus the pursuit of love and faith, the pursuit of love and faith is so much harder. It's easier. Just create a bunch of rules. For me, just tell me when I have to show up to church and what I need to wear and what I need to look like, and that's so much easier for me than to actually have to love somebody, show care for them, to minister to them. But when love is ruling and reigning through us, it's going to transform relationships. And Paul lived in this kind of hopeful love. Verses 21 through 24, then Paul just concludes the whole matters there. Or verse 22 through 24. You see in verse 22, he expected to get out. I love this little comment. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. The expectation here is, I believe Paul just thought he was going to make this journey to Rome, have his time in front of Caesar, make his case and be let go, and all this was going to end, and he was going to move on into ministry life. He didn't know where God was directing in the midst of this. I think this little insight here is just that little picture into Paul's expectation at that time. Verse 23 and 24 is encouraging as well because even while Paul was in this difficulty, the Lord had surrounded him with gospel ministers to help him. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Paul was chained, but he wasn't alone. Paul had, again, a active ministry life, even in prison. And then the final words, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This rich book teaches us how to love. 
And I would hope that as we go through this, we'd recognize this. We would want the principle of love to rule among us, enabling and encouraging others to walk in love, encouraging them to do the right thing, desiring the greater expression of love to be in our midst, operating in such a way that we seek to benefit others and not being consumed with ourselves, looking not to work against God's purposes, but to work in light of God's purposes, to recognize that it is in walking in love the greatest spiritual benefits would be received. God oftentimes pours out his greater favor upon us as we are doing what is right. It was so easy to for us to measure value by dollars and currency and, and earthly things. But there are the spiritual riches and rewards that come when walking in obedience that are lavished upon us beyond what we can ask or imagine. And we should train our hearts to desire those things. And love lavishly demonstrates forgiveness so lavishly that we are able to treat even our enemies as our dear friends. And when we're able to operate in that way, then those who've harmed us severely, but we show them the kind of love that we would show a friend, we know that our forgiveness has been as rich as God's forgiveness towards us. And I can tell you this, that has to be modeled first. It has to be modeled by us before we can call someone to emulate us in the practice in the midst of it, when, we lo- when we're tempted to lose hope and, and become doubtful, we recognize love encourages us to persevere, to endure. I would pray again that that would be the kind of church that we would be, an enduring church that demonstrates the love of God, expressed particularly in how we guard and protect personal relationships. We reconcile quickly, we restore quickly, we seek to forgive lavishly so that God is richly on display in our love. All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths and these lessons. They're just so rich. The personal interaction that's demonstrated in this text, the joy of the Apostle Paul to write to a beloved friend, the expectation of good things to come, the joy that would have been on the hearts of the church seeing this restored relationship and seeing your divine work, even the encouragement that comes to our hearts when we want to get out of the way so that you can richly be on display. All of that fills our hearts with comfort and joy. And so we pray, continue to direct us to be a people that are saturated in the soil of love so that the, the expression of forgiveness would be manifested in our midst. And certainly we would ask that we would be guarded from the evil one so that we would not sin. But if we do sin, we would ask for your forgiveness and for your people to respond in a way that demonstrates your love and forgiveness towards one another. Thankful for all you're doing in our lives, and we're thankful for the ways in which you're growing us. And may we be mindful of all the ways that you're using the trials and difficulties we face to transform us into the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.